Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Let me tell you a couple of things tonight. You're going to learn some things that you haven't learned before, not that you don't ever learn things in Thursdays. But then I'm going to take you someplace, and tonight I'm going to tell you that our study is going to be X-rated. And I want you to know that. We'll explain what that means in a moment. Uh, but basically, let me tell you where we are. We're in the second year of Jesus' ministry. His ministry is starting to heat up, as a matter of fact. We've already gone through this first year of ministry. Remember, we've given you the Passovers to kind of gauge you where you are. We're right over here in the second year, right after, the, uh, right after uh, Pentecost, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we are. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. We'll talk about him choosing his 12 disciples, and then we'll talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Look at this chart, if you will, just for a moment to give you a little bit of an understanding. This is his birth. These are the silent years. This is when Jesus was 30 years old. This is the first Passover. We can gauge his ministry years by the, by the Passovers. His first year, he will perform 18 miracles in his first year. Now watch what happens in Jesus' ministry. In his second year, he will perform 27 miracles. He is, they're starting to heat up. And by the third year in his final Passover, he will perform 72 miracles. So his ministry is definitely building, and he's doing this purposely. And these are recorded miracles, by the way. We know he may have... We may have done a whole lot more than this, but uh, they're, they are starting to get incre increase. You'll also notice that the number of recorded events during this period begins to crescendo. They start to raise up. So even though this is the year of popularity, this will actually be the year of opposition. And in the year of opposition, he will do more things. More things will be recorded about him than ever before. So we are building in his ministry. So he's still in the Galilean ministry or Galilean ministry, whichever you prefer. And here's how we're going to study that. When we're going to continue on, he'll name the 12 disciples, their apostles. He'll have the Sermon on the Mount. He'll heal the centurion's servant. He'll raise the widow's son. John the Baptist will send disciples to question Jesus. John's in prison. Jesus will condemn his generation. Sinful woman will anoint his feet. We'll talk about that and who she was. He'll preach throughout every city and village again. He will, he will talk about the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, the woman's blessing, and then the sign of Jonas, which is an amazing sign that we'll talk about. So, first off, he names the 12 disciples. Again, it's the middle of Jesus' second year of ministry. We are given the 12 apostles' names in three different accounts. As he names these 12 apostles, he does it, and I want you to know this. I want you to see his apostles do not jump on the ship as soon as he starts his ministry. It's not here. They're right over here that he names all 12 of them. He only has five up until here, but it's in the second year that he starts to name all 12. Why? Well, we'll tell you why he's starting to gather disciples. We'll tell you why it was 12 and not 8. But before we do that, I'm going to give you the three accounts where the disciples are named. And notice how I've highlighted in different colors. You'll, you'll start to learn a little bit about the disciples or the apostles. Now the names from Matthew. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas. And Matthew, the publican or tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus. And Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, watch this, uh, this account, Mark 3. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And he surnamed them Boangers, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. I was, teaching this one I was uh, talking about this one time, and somebody came up and said, that's why I don't believe in the Bible. It was not a group of people that were Christians, by the way. That's why I don't believe in the Bible, because it's contradicting itself. There's different names in all these groups, but we'll see. Uh, Simon, who also surnamed Peter, and Andrew's brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called Zelotes, Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which is also a traitor. Now, this can be very 
very confusing. As you can see, the names of the 12 disciples can be quite confusing because some had multiple names. So let me break them down for you. They're always listed in three groups of four. The disciples, whenever they are mentioned in Scripture, are always listed in three groups of four. And you'll see that the top four get the most attention all the time. And later, three of these top four will make up what the, what the scholars call the inner three. They will see more miracles and more things than the others. They'll be trusted more than the others. That's right, trusted, brought into, into the circle of Jesus more than the others. They will also be entrusted with more than the others, as we will see. But here's how they are in order, so you can see it. And let me give it to you this way first. You'll notice I have them in color here. There are four groups of three. You'll always see Peter, Andrew, James, and John mentioned first. Peter always first in that, in that, in that order. In Matthew, it's Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The only time that messes up is in Mark, but the same four there. Andrew's in the, in the last part of it. And then you see Andrew again in second here. So all four of them are always mentioned together. Now, let me remind you, the three of these will become the inner three. It'll be... Peter, James, and John, they will see more than anybody else sees. They will be the ones that will be asked to be praying with Jesus. Why would that be? Because of what we're told. These are A-type personalities. Let me tell you what that means. Peter is an A-type personality. James and John, he calls the sons of thunder. They're A-type personalities. Andrew's just as close, but Andrew will not be used in the inner three because what was Jesus' main object, objective for calling his disciples? To get his, the great news published. Andrew is more of the prayer warrior of the group. Andrew was more the one that was silent, but he needs people to go out there and to, and to speak what he's been showing. So these three are going to, be, are going to make up the, the uh, evangelists, if you will. Then the second group has always started this way. It's always started with Philip. Philip was one of the first ones. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Then the last group is what really messes people up. It's always started with James the Less, but then it gets kind of strange. James, Labius, Simon, and always Judas Iscariot last. James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. James, Simon, Judas, and Judas Iscariot. Let me, let me clarify for you. Labius, Thaddeus, and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, the, Z the Zelotus, is the same person. It's three different names. He has three different names. Labius, Thaddeus, Judas. So, we know that these groups are grouped there for, for a reason. Always heads, the first group is Peter. Always has the second group is Philip. Always has the third group is James the Less. Always mentioned last is Judas Iscariot. There's a reason for it. Let me show it to you another way. Usually this thing in groups of four, we know their occupations. We know that Simon, Andrew, James, and John are fishermen. They're the only fishermen. When Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, he does not say it to all 12 of the disciples. He says it to the first four, and the first three are the evangelists of the, of the, of the group. Peter, Cephas, Simon Barjona. He is, the, he is Peter the rock. Uh, Peter's brother Andrew, always called Peter's brother in Scripture. That should give us a hint. Andrew's never called, many, many times has not called Andrew. He's always called Peter's brother. You know from, all, from reading Scripture, he takes second fiddle all the way down the line. So he's eclipsed by his brother. That's one of the reasons why he's not part of the inner three. Inner four, not inner three. So I want you to see these. And then he, he, he names 12 disciples. Now why would Jesus name 12 disciples? Why not eight? Why not ten? Well, it's biblical numerology. Twelve in scripture means something. Let me go over it for you. Biblical numerology. Number one in scripture is symbolic of unity. Unique. None other like it. Uh, that's how number one plays out all over scripture. We know one God, one Lord, one unity, one faith, one baptism. Uh, we know that that one is a specific number that says unity. 
Then we see that number two is symbolic of division or strife. We know symbolic of division or strife, the two-edged sword. We know number three is symbolic of divine completeness. We have the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, three universal substances, Einstein says, energy, motion, phenomena, the three parts of time, past, present, and future, the three parts of man, body, soul, and spirit. Three is an amazing number in Scripture. The three manifestations of unity, Moses, Jesus, and Elijah, and the transfiguration, the number of family unity, the incarnation, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, a religious unity, uh, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, of religious virtues, faith, hope, and charity, of death, the three crosses, of ritual, three parts of the temple, outer court, inner court, holy of holies, three gates to each side of the Jerusalem, Antichrist, the false prophet, and the great red dragon try to do a duplication of this three of the number of completeness. Obviously, it's an unholy trinity. Number four is the number of, of earthly things, and all you need to do to see that is think about the word news, northeast, west, and south. You need the four directions, the four winds, the four seasons, four living creatures, the four winds of heaven, the four corners of the earth, the four divisions of time, hour, day, month, year. Am I going too fast for you? Five is the number, is symbolic for grace of God. If you read the tabernacle in the wilderness, it's loaded with the number five or the number 50. All the measurements have five and 50. I once taught an, 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 an elaborate teaching on the tabernacle and showed all the number five, the number of grace. Of course, we know the number six is symbolic for man or for evil. And we know that that six is represented men's number, the number of evil, the consummation of evil. In triad form, in its unity, the evil of evil 666, the unity of evil. Six is one short of seven, the number of perfection. The English language has roots in the oldest of languages based on the six root system of evaluating wealth. Six times two is one foot, six times six, one yard, six forties is one section, six times six sections, one township. One township is six miles square. Solomon's yearly income was 666 talents of gold. Jesus said that the love of money was the root of all evil. You using six Greek words. So, I like to study. What can I tell you? Seven, symbolic of perfection and fullness. I won't go over all of them. Eight, symbolic for resurrection. That's why Noah had, there was eight people on the ark. It was going to come out of a new resurrection. Uh, the, Jesus would actually resurrect the, on, the, on the first day of the week, the eighth day of their feast. Uh, symbolic of finality and judgment, 9, 10, symbolic of divine order in the law, of course, the Ten Commandments, 11, symbolic of disorder and imperfection, and 12, this is the reason why, symbolic of governmental perfection, governmental perfection, it is found in multiples of all that has to do with ruling, the sun rules the day, the moon and the stars govern the night, the Bible tells us, they do so by passing through the 12 signs of the zodiac, the zodiac is not a, a name that Satan gave it, you can look in Job, it's called the Maseroth, the 12 signs, 12 is, is 3, the perfectly divine number, times 4, the earthly number. There were 12 patriarchs, 12 from Seth to Noah, antediluvians, 12 from Shem to Jacob, post-diluvians, 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 stones in the ephod, 12 cakes of showbread, 12 spies of Moses, 12 wells of water for traveling Israelites in Elam, Elijah, built an altar of 12 stones. This is not coincidental. At Jesus' request, 12 legions of angels would be sent to the Father to help him. Total rule. Woman was diseased for 12 years. The disease had total rule over her body. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. Jesus is 12 when he's in the temple showing that he can handle the law and be a ruler. In Revelation, the woman has 12 stars in chapter 12 about Israel. New Jerusalem has 12 gates with 12 pearls and 12 angels at the gates, has 12 foundations. The tree of life bears 12 types of fruit for the healing of the nation. The city is 12,000 furlongs on each side. The height of the wall is 144 cubits, 12 times 12. In the book of Judges, only 12 judges judged Israel, ruled. Most frequently used number in scripture, by the way, is 144,000. 12,000 times 12, 
5,000. When talking about truth and authority and governmental power in John 19:11, Jesus told Pilate he could have no power, no authority against him except that were given him from above. And amazingly, he uses exactly 12 Greek words to say so. Auk, eix, usian, adumion, kata, imu, i, mon, an, soi, dedominon, anthonthen. Translated, they say, thou could have no power at all against me except that were given thee from above. Now, I don't know what else I can do to tell you that 12 is the number of rule. So obviously, when Jesus chose these 12 disciples, he's looking for someone to rule, to carry out, to govern, not just on the earthly plane, but even on the, in, the, in the time to come. We know that even the 24 elders are made up of 12 of the Old Testament patriarchs and 12 of some New Testament saints. And so we see that this, this is this total rule that he has to show ultimate rulership, governmental perfection. They would make up the foundation of his kingdom. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2.20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. They would carry on his work to the fullest, and eventually they did. Paul replaces Judas, by the way, in case you want to know. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God. I know that in Acts it talks about Matthias drawing a lot, but Matthias does that just in a kind of show, show area, kind of a symbolic area. Paul is really the 12th apostle. He's the one that fills the gap. So Jesus' purpose in calling them is twofold. Number one, that they might be, be with him and learn of him. Number two, that he might send them forth to complete the work he started. The Greek word apostle means to send forth. So we know that he has a plan. He's garnering his apostles. He's gathering them together. He's mounting his offensive. He's reaching towards Jerusalem. He's performing more miracles. He's telling them that you may not understand these things, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will illuminate the things that you had. The disciples have a front row seat at everything that Jesus does because they're the ones that are going to spread the gospel to the rest of the world. Which brings me to my next point tonight, the Sermon on the Mount, and that's all I'm going to do tonight. We're going to spend the rest of the night on the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because it is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher. As a matter of fact, it is the very first sermon that Jesus will preach, one of four that he will preach, and it is absolutely powerful, and we're going to take it apart tonight, and basically it'll probably take us apart too. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I'll actually start with verse 3. This is, I saw this picture when I was a kid. I was just really small. I was not, I was, saw it with my dad right before my dad died. And uh, it's the only religious thing I ever knew my dad to see. It was King of Kings with Jeffrey Hunter. Probably one of the most accurate portrayals of the Sermon on the Mount that I've ever seen. Because he's not on top of the mountain. The people are. He is on a plain and the Sea of Galilee is behind him. And that's exactly how Jesus would have preached the Sermon on the Mount. It would have been that natural amphitheater. He gets up and the people stop on the, and the wind from the Sea of Galilee will whip up past Jesus' voice and take it all the way up the mountain. If you're on the mountain and you're speaking, nobody down below you can hear you. The wind takes your voice past you. It's a natural, it's a natural way to amplify a voice. Jesus speaks to thousands on the Mount of the Beatitudes. This mountain is very close uh, to where uh, Capernaum is. The people come to him after he chooses the 12, as a matter of fact. Uh, these people start to come to him. Now, I'm going to show you. I'm going to just read a little bit for you. It says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the earth. I'm going to really explain this to you tonight. We think we know this, but I really want to explain it. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for justice, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are they who suffer persecution for justice sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll go over those again tonight. I just wanted to give them all to you. Here's where it's spoken. If I can give you the physical location, here it is. This is Capernaum. This is where he's made his base of operations. He's coming from Cana and Nazareth. It's through a pass right over here. That's, the pass is where he came from. He's making his base of operations here. He is going to do many miracles from, from Capernaum, but he's going to go travel down this spot, all, all the way up and down this spot, and people are going to be with him. This is the seashore, the northeast and northwestern seashore of Galilee. This is where the Mount of Beatitudes is. It's overlooking uh, the plain that's down here. Magdala is right here where Mary Magdalene comes from. And so we know that he's going to speak it from this mountain. Now, if you're ever on that mountain and you come with us, this is an actual picture from it, and you go to Israel with this, you will see this church on top of that mountain. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is the view from the, from the monastery. The church is below it. This church is octagonal. Capernaum is over here. It is an absolutely gorgeous site. It's nowhere near where Jesus preached. But it's gorgeous. It really is. I guarantee you, though, hordes of people were on this mountain right here. So it does commemorate it. And it's okay with me because it's a beautiful spot. But it is the mountain that he preached but he preached up the mountain, not down the mountain. The interesting part about this church is this church is kind of an interesting interesting church. It's Catholic. So Franciscan monks built it. That's why you'll see the brown on it. They, they like brown and white. It's built in eight sides to commemorate the Beatitudes. How many have a problem with that already? There's nine Beatitudes. It was built on eight sides. They combined two Beatitudes into one. It was built by Barluzzi, uh, and it was built in 1938 by money given to him by Benito Mussolini. So when I go there and I teach people this, I have to, my, my, the guide that I guide, and so the guy that's with me, my friend always says, man, shh, don't, tell, don't say it too loud. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus is going to preach this Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to read this today. It's an X-rated sermon. Whether you know it or not, it is. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, it can't. Well, let me just give you my idea of this. I think sermons ought to be rated the same way we rate movies. G sermons are messages that everyone generally accepts by everyone. They contain phrases such as, go ye all the, go you into the world, all ye into the world, and smile. Or what the world needs is peace, motherhood, and fewer taxes. I call those G, listen, I've been a pastor for a long time, and I know a G-rated sermon when I hear one. They don't offend anyone. Are you with me tonight? Sermons such as these are often greeted with the response, oh, wasn't that marvelous? Don't you feel great? Or that was simply wonderful, wasn't it? Everyone loves a good G-rated message. And they'll never offend anyone. There are some people who would refuse to listen to a message that wasn't G-rated. Are you with me tonight? PG-rated messages are for more mature congregations. And they have mild suggestions for change, but they settle, they're subtle enough to allow the preacher to backpedal and change his meaning if he finds that he has inadvertently offended someone. An example of a brilliant PG statement would be the either-or of the essential situation provides a plethora of alternatives, both specific and nonspecific. When one grasps the eschatological aspect of the incarnational Christology. You know that someone has preached a message like this when people walk away in wonderment, shaking their heads and saying things like, that was deep. That was the most thought-provoking. Of course, if you've done a PG sermon really well, nobody actually knows what you said. But nobody's willing to admit it either. Then there's the R-rated messages. The R-rated sermon. This is when the preacher tells it like it is. These usually indicate that the pastor has an outside source of income and a fairly healthy self-image. Sermons like these are usually followed by comments such as, that was disturbing, that was controversial, 
These sermons definitely aren't intended for everyone, only for those who wish to be challenged in their spiritual walk. And then there's the X-rated sermons. These are the explosive ideas of the kind that got the prophet Amos run out of town and Jeremiah thrown into a pit. When you preach an X-rated sermon, you preach them with your suitcase packed and the moving van ready. Comments range from that was shocking and disgraceful to being in poor taste. Jesus was the master of X-rated sermons, by the way. And the Sermon on the Mount is the mother of all X-rated sermons. Oh, no, pastor, you're saying that. That's, that's, a, that's a mild sermon. That's a real easy sermon. It's just not true. The Sermon on the Mount is one of my favorite scriptures. And I don't find it in the least bit shocking or offensive. That, my friend, is because you're not reading it the way Jesus preached it. And so we're going to read it the way Jesus preached it. Mark Twain was asked once if he found the Bible hard to understand. Twain responded by saying he wasn't bothered by the parts of the Bible he couldn't understand as much as he was bothered by the parts that he could understand. We try to rationalize the Sermon on the Mount or we try to explain it away, but if we got it right down the brass tacks, right down to where the rubber meets the road and took the Sermon on the Mount at face value, it wouldn't only change the church, it would revolutionize the world. If we really took this for what it's saying and if we all practiced it, and I'm putting myself in there, we would revolutionize our families. You would never be the same. The world would never be the same. The people around you wouldn't be the same. If our politics took this, you would never have the problems you have now. If we, if we had it in an economic sense, you'd never have economic problems. The Sermon on the Mount is extremely X-rated. It is the most radical message you will ever hear. Multitudes were swarming Jesus at this phase of his ministry. And by the way, before I tell you this, lots of people have taken this sermon and made it into a G-rated sermon or an R-rated sermon, or a PG rating. You can do that with Scripture. You can do it any way you want to. But we really want to take it the way it was meant. Amen? So multitudes are coming around Jesus. He's in his year of popularity. He just chose 12 disciples. They are thronging him. They start to, get, they start to gather where he is. By the way, the reason he's in this mountain, is he's, and the reason he's coming down from it, is he usually went into the mountains around Capernaum to pray to his father. This is early in the morning, a spring day. Imagine it. He's up in the mountain praying before it gets light. The, he starts to come down the mountain. He chooses his 12 disciples. He talks about the, them being commissioned. And the people start to see him and they start to gather. So they start coming around him. And Jesus launches into this, into this diatribe, into this sermon that's amazing. My belief is that the opposition from the Pharisees brought many more people into his midst than we had normally. The Pharisees were out of touch with the common people. The common people loved Jesus because he wasn't teaching them about some dull, dead religion. He was teaching them something that was powerful, and they wanted it. The Pharisees weren't connecting with them. They're still not today. If you go to Israel and you see the Hasidim, and you see them with all their curls and all their black, they're not connecting with the common Jew. They are, they are so far away from the common Jew, it isn't even funny. The Jews are ready for a revival today. They're ready for Christ today because religion hasn't hit them. Their religion hasn't hit them. So the Jesus pr uh, proposes a Magna Carta of the kingdom of God. So Jesus has all these people coming and he takes an opportunity to give them a manifesto, to give them what the kingdom of God really is like. A New Testament of commandments, if you will. You see, the Sermon on the Mount can be a G, a PG, or an R-rated sermon. But when you begin to view it as it commands, as commands for your life today, in this world, when it very quickly becomes an X-rated sermon. I wonder what would happen if instead of looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a set of quaint, antiquated teachings, we put the words of Christ 
Christ into action, and we practice them on an everyday basis. If we accepted his ideas at the rule and not the exception, both as individuals and society, I wonder what would happen if we sought to make the words of Christ come to life in our personal relationships, international relationships, our political relationships, our economic relationships. I can't answer that because, because in the 2,000 years since we've been given the Sermon on the Mount, we have failed to take it seriously because it contains ideas that make us uncomfortable and nervous. Now, just follow me for a moment. And because we have failed to implement the basics that Christ laid out for us, we've ended up with a pretty messed up society and a pretty messed up church. Come on, somebody say amen. The Sermon on the Mount is a case in point for Jesus' radical teaching on radical Christianity. It's about attitudes. Oh, boy. It's filled with B attitudes. B this attitude. B like this. So let's study what we all have trouble doing. These Beatitudes are, are extremely difficult to practice. And they go against our very natures because they go deeper than the do's and don'ts of religion. They journey into the why do you do this and why don't you do that. One Sunday as they drove home from church, a little girl turned to her mother and said, Mommy, there's something about the preacher's message this morning that I just don't understand. And I said, oh, really, honey, what is it? The little girl replied, well, he said that God is bigger than we are. He said that God is so big that he could hold the whole world in his hand. Is that true? The mother replied, well, yes, honey, that's true. But mommy, he also said that God comes to live inside of us when we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Is that true too? Again, the mother assured the little girl that what the pastor had said was true. With a puzzled look on her face, the little girl then asked, if God is bigger than us and he lives in us, why wouldn't he show through? That's the key of the Sermon on the Mount is for Christ to show through us. This is what the Beatitudes are all about. God showing through us. It's always been God's purpose that when he enters our lives, he would, he would be allowed to so fill us and control us that he would show through us. Being a Christian isn't saying you're a Christian. It's seeing God. Somebody sees God in you. They see him showing through you. Come on, you with me tonight? Not that we would imitate Christ or try to do the things that Jesus would do, but that Christ himself would be allowed to live through us. The Beatitudes are like a light bulb that comes off inside of us, and everybody else sees the light that comes out. I once heard a preacher preaching on the Beatitudes before I was, before I was a preacher, and he said, don't try to act like this. And he says, humans aren't capable and able to keep Beatitudes no matter how hard you try. Nobody can be like Jesus, like Jesus can be. But by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says he's come to live in us, that Jesus can be seen through us. If we can't be like the Beatitudes, then why would Jesus give them to us? We can be like the Beatitudes. Listen, let me ask you a question. How would life be different if Jesus were come to take your place? What if he took your place in, in your home? What if he performed your work at the job? If you're a teenager tonight, what if he sat in your desk at school? What if he filled my place in the pulpit Sunday? If that's exactly what he wants to do. He came to live within me to kill my carnal works of this body and master the circumstances of my life manifest his character, and minister to others that my life touches every day. And we do the same thing for you. Knowing that makes me wonder, does anyone ever see God show through me? I hope they do. And if they do, I promise you the way they're seeing him show through me is through the Beatitudes, because that's how God shows. So let's begin. You ready tonight? Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I guess we should know what these Beatitudes are if we wanted to show through it, shouldn't we? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice that Jesus starts off every beatitude with the word blessed or blessed. 
The Greek word is the word makarios. It means well-off. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is revolutionary in itself. It means well-off, very, very, very rich, in need of nothing. Jesus is using a specific word that everyone that's hearing him would be, would be familiar with, but would not think it was part of their life. He wasn't talking about the top ten richest people in the world. And by the way, here they are. Carlos Blim, $53.5 billion. Telcom, the richest man in the world. Bill Gates, $53 billion. Warren Buffett, $47 billion. This guy's from India and deals with gas, $29 billion, $28.7 billion. And just how much is $1 billion? $1 billion? If $1 billion kids made a human tower, they'd stand up past the moon. $1 billion. If you sat down now and started to count to $1 billion, starting now, not stopping, 24-7, it would take you 95 years to count to $1 billion. These guys have $53 billion. I couldn't help but do this. I just want to show you this. I couldn't help but do this. Just pardon me. I have to go back to our government for a moment. That's a billion dollars, $100 bills stacked. Couches made of $100 bills, $100 bills stacked. This is $1 trillion. There's the lady with the $100 bills stacked. These are all $100 bills. That's a 747. This is the Capitol at Lincoln Memorial. Billions. Listen, Jesus is saying, if you do these things, you will have more riches than the riches in the, in, the, in the world. Now, we have a real weird concept. We see somebody with money, and we think they made it. We see somebody with money, and we think that they're happy, they're blessed. Blessed, by the way, actually means happy, very, very rich, very roll off because of your riches. Now, listen, he wasn't talking about the top richest people in the world. Would you say those people are well off? How many would say they're well off? Jesus would not. If you were, packed, if you were lined up against Bill Gates, and you were Christian, and he's not, he's an agnostic, Jesus would say, he is as poor as a church mouse. You are blessed. He is pathetic. That's what he would say. His riches mean nothing. This is what Jesus is doing. Now, listen to his crowd. His crowd are the poorest of the poor. They're people that have watched everybody else have the money and all the riches and all the accolades. They're far away from Jerusalem. It's radical. Listen to what he's saying. So why should we study this today? The answer is the first word in the first verse. And almost every verse, blessed. Jesus got our attention from the get-go. We want to be, how many of you want to be blessed? How many want to be blessed? Let me suggest to you that American Christianity doesn't have a clue of what being blessed is. Let me suggest to you that when some preacher steps up and says, I'm blessed because God's given me this, 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 and he names material things, he does not know the Sermon on the Mount. Let me suggest that to you. Here's what the others will see when God shows through. A happy person. This is the first sermon recorded in the New Testament as having been preached by Jesus. It begins with a promise of happiness. Nine times the voice of Jesus reaches out to the multitude seated on that hillside. People who were oppressed politically, socially, economically, with the offer of genuine happiness. Happiness is an uncommon feeling, by the way. The word translated blessed, again, is makarios. It was a common word in Jesus' day, but Jesus used it in an uncommon way. Typically, it was used to describe in Jesus' day the wealthy because they enjoyed a standard of living that appeared to put them out of reach of the cares of life. Money, they feel, can buy happiness. Or it was used to describe the Greek gods because they had the power to gratify their every desire. It described a state of contentment and delight that was reserved for a very, very privileged minority. And I know you. You're just like me. You've looked at people that have lots and lots of money and you wondered why. Why do they have money? Why don't I have all that money? Jesus would give you a radical X-rated sermon if we said that to him. Are you with me tonight?
This world gives us the popular concept of happiness. They say, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are the gifted. Blessed are the powerful. Happiness is a common desire. Yet so few people seem to have it when we put it in the same category as four-leaf clovers and pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. The elusive. I've known people who are super rich that were not happy. Come on, so have you. Happiness is linked with power. Not everyone can have it in our world. It's linked with prosperity. Not everyone can have it in our world. It's linked with popularity. Not everyone can have it. Happiness, Jesus is giving us an unexpected offer. After noting that Jesus used nine back-to-back announcements of blessings or happiness, he remarks, having endured a lifetime of verbal assaults by the scribes and the Pharisees, the multitude on the mountain must have thought that they had died and gone to heaven. When he told them that they could be the richest around, the happiest around, for some reason, some people look at the Bible and all they see is the negative. They emphasize the prohibitions, the curses, the judgments, and leave people with an impression that God has the disposition of a dill pickle. They seem to see God as the cosmic killjoy who spends his time trying to think up new ways to make people miserable. But Jesus paints a different picture. He shows us a God who wants us to be happy, who wanted to fill our lives with satisfaction, contentment, and delight. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, and I read it one time, that blessed is a word full of sunshine, thrilling with music, brimmed over with just what man is seeking. The same word is used in 1 Timothy 1.1. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope, happy hope, happy God. We never have a concept of a happy God, a happy hope, a, a truly rich God, a truly rich hope. This is what he's talking about. So all of these are going to be prefaced with this word blessed. It's also the meaning of congratulations, by the way. So are you poor in spirit? Congratulations. Are you happy? Too many people spend their lives thinking, I could be happy if, if I got that new house, if I got that Lamborghini, if I had a million dollars in the bank. What does poor in spirit mean? What will make you happy? Are you ready for it? Humility. Poor in spirit. The word there is toso in the Greek. It means to crouch down and beg. The way you want to be happy today and fulfilled is when you're in a position of asking God for more of him. That's the only thing Jesus says that will make you happy. Are you happy? Too many people spend their lives thinking, I could be happy if I just had this. And I would suggest that people seldom see God showing through someone like that. If you're humble, there's a certain happiness that comes with that that only the humble know. When God shows through, the world will not only see a happy person, for happiness is based on happenstance and circumstances, but they'll see something deeper. The second thing he says is this, you will be truly rich, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me tell you what that means. This is talking about having compassion on others, crying for others, having a heart for others. The greatest thing I do in my life, the greatest thing, the greatest rewards I get in my life, let me put it this way, is not when somebody hands me some money. That's wonderful. It's great to occupy that. The greatest rewards I get in my life is when I could pray with somebody who's come from, come from Teen Challenge, a young girl whose life is all messed up and she changes her life in a moment. Tears of hot tears come down her face and I can see that her life has truly changed. You couldn't pay me a million dollars for that. That makes me the happiest person, the most blessed person. I feel the richest person on the planet when I do that. It's one of the reasons why I'm in the ministry. Listen, Jesus mourned for others. He wept for Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. He hurt for the leper, the blind, the lame. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the word says. We must never lose our soft hearts. The Greek word for mourn is the word pathos. It means feeling for others to have compassion. It's the opposite of our dog-eat-dog world. It's the opposite of cutting somebody off in traffic. It's the opposite of saying, I better get to that line before somebody else does. And let me tell you something, I'm just as guilty as everybody else. 
How many of you have ever seen somebody really happy and blessed that cut somebody else off in traffic? They're miserable and they, they, they look it. Listen. Those who give of themselves, their time, their money are blessed and well off, Jesus says. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. What is meekness? Meekness is absolute power under perfect control. Isaiah 43 says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flash shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Jesus was gentle. He was meek. We all know or we've heard of this man. Does anybody recognize him? Maybe some of our, our elderly folks will recognize him. I hate when I say that word because I'm in there. Anybody know who that is? Douglas MacArthur. Douglas MacArthur was the supreme commander of the Allied forces in World War II. He was originally stationed in the, in the South Pacific. And basically, he was the youngest graduate of West Point. He was the youngest general in the, in the history of America. He was taken off. He was actually officially accepted Japan's surrender in uh, September 2nd of 1945. And he was taken off the, the theater and off the front because he wanted to finish the job. How many remember that? But there's some things we don't know about this man. Unknown to most, he was a devout Christian and he was a student of the Beatitudes. Here's a prayer he wrote for his son. There's the prayer. I want to read it for you. General Douglas MacArthur wrote this prayer for his son. He prayed, Build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid, one who will be proud and unbending in honest defeat and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose wishes will not take the place of deeds, a son who will know thee, who is the foundation stone of knowledge. Lead him, I pray, not in the path of ease and comfort, but under the stress and spur of difficulties and challenge. Here let him learn to stand up to the storm. Here let him learn compassion for those who fall fail. Build me a son whose heart will be clear, whose goal will be high, a son who will master himself before he seeks to master other men, one who will reach into the future, yet never forget the past. And after all these things are, are his, add, I pray, O Lord, enough of a sense of humor, so that he may always be serious, but never take himself too seriously. Give him humility, so that he may always remember the simplicity of true greatness, and an open mind of true wisdom, and the meekness of true strength. Then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. Douglas MacArthur knew the Beatitudes. He's talking about being happy. He says, let, him, let my son struggle. Don't let him have everything. Don't let me give him everything. Let him struggle so he knows what true happiness is. This, listen, it goes on a little bit further. It says, blessed are those, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, Matthew 5, 6. This is about being hungry and thirsty for God, by the way, as you would for your daily food. Righteousness, the Greek word there is diakos. It means innocent and purity. It means you're going to be happy if in your life, instead of searching after riches, you search after God. I really feel I'm talking to the right people tonight. Listen, let me give you the rest of them quickly. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'll explain them all in a moment. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me sum them up for you tonight. Blessed means well off, very rich, are the poor in spirit, toso, to crouch and beg. Are those that mourn, pathos, to have compassion on others. You want to be happy tonight? Here it is. The meek, praus, gentle and mild, which hunger and thirst after righteousness, paino, to crave God. Merciful, ilio, to show divine grace to others. When they fail, you show them grace. Pure in heart, katharos, we get our word catheter from it. It means to clean you out. It doesn't mean you're always 
you're always pure. It means that when you're dirty and you feel bad, you allow God to clean you out. That's why David had a heart that, that followed after God's. Are the peacemakers, poeo, to agree quickly. Man, do we need that, to agree quickly. Which are persecuted. Bless those, after right, dioko, to suffer. And bless are you when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you. Onenizo, defame, threaten, and make fun of. Our world, our, our nation is starting to make fun of Christians. The Bible says you're going to get a blessing from that. God says you can start being happy in that. They're the Beatitudes. Listen, listen, here's what they are again. I'll put it in my words. Be willing to beg God for all he has. Be compassionate to all he shows you. Be gentle and mild in life's encounters. Be craving for more of him every day. Be a person who shows grace to those who, who, fa who fall. Be someone willing to have their heart cleared out every day. Be the one who comes to a peaceable agreement quickly. Be willing to suffer for what you believe. Be glad when you are made fun of for Jesus' sake. These are Jesus' be attitudes for our lives to be happy, well-off, full, and blessed. And man, you just got the greatest message from Jesus, not me tonight, because he preached it. So listen. So the question tonight is, do we want to be happy? Now, I can, and, and boy, I'd love to be able to, I'd love to be a billionaire tonight, and I'd love to line up a couple hundred thousand dollars on that uh, for every one of you there and say, here's your choice. You can come up and take that money, or you can do this. It's a real temptation, isn't it? And that's how we have to think. The whole person. The Beatitudes are a self-portrait of Christ. That's what we should see in, if God were living in the body of a man. And God's purpose, according to Romans 8, 29, is for every Christian to be conformed into the image of Christ, into this image. Therefore, it's reasonable to draw the following conclusions. One, the Beatitudes describe qualities that every single one of us should exhibit. They don't describe a special class of super-Christians. Every Christian should exhibit all of them. So why is this an X-rated message of Jesus? Because it's a radical change from the people, like the way people live their lives. It's a radical change for all of us, even today. The Beatitudes are describing, are the evidence of a yielded life. They are not to be produced by a Christian, but in the Christian. They tell us what men will see in a life that's surrendered to God. The Beatitudes do not represent individual qualities in us, but a complete picture of man who is mastered by God. This is our quest. Our quest in our lives is to get mastered by God. The Bible itself is extremely radical. It takes us from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from a set of laws written on stone, the Old Testament, to a set of attitudes written in our hearts. Jesus will later go on to say this in the, in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, because it lasts pretty long. Listen, he says this. He says, you have heard it said, he's talking about the law. This is the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness. Don't murder. But I'm telling you, the kingdom of heaven principles are these. You need to have a freedom of spirit of hate. You can't, you can't hate somebody inside. Forget about murdering. It's worse for you if you hate them inside. Why is it worse? Because it starts there. He said, you've heard it said, no extramarital sex. I'm telling you, don't even look at that woman and try to have, and, and think about it. No less full, it's an inside-out religion. Remember my, my suit jacket I put on? You heard it said, tell the truth when you're under oath. But I'm telling you, be a truthful person all the time. Forget about just being under oath. You heard it said, an eye for an eye, retaliate. But he says, be a person who can give in. Turn your other cheek. You heard it said, give so everybody can see. He says, give so only God sees. You've heard it said, pray so everybody can see. Pray for only God, so only God sees. Fast so everybody can see. Fast only so to catch God's eye. Take care of yourself. This one says, he says, but trust God. T change people by controlling, manipulating, and judging them. That's what you've heard. We, I'm telling you, we change people by learning to pray, to ask, to seek, and to knock. Now, it's a message that's a strange message. Trust me. It's a strange thing. Let me give you another illustration as I get close to closing tonight. The Bible has never been so accessible to man as it is today. According to the book of 
the Guinness Book of Records, L. Ron Hubbard's writings of Scientology have been translated into 65 languages. The Quran is supposed to be read in Arabic, so it's not been translated as much. The Book of Mormon is translated in 100 languages. The Bible that you hold has been translated in 2,656 languages. Some 65 million copies of the Bible are brought, bought or distributed in the United States every year. Nothing else is a, even a close second. The average house has at least three Bibles in it. People cheer the Bible. They buy the Bible. They give the Bible. They own the Bible. But they don't actually read the Bible. According to George Gallup, one-third of those surveyed knew who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. One-third. Fewer than half can name the first book of the Bible. 80% of born-again Christians believe the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. By the way, Ben Franklin said that. It's nowhere in the Bible. So I'm thinking a lot these days of how to help people that God brings my way to know the truth. The problem is that everything in the world is now being preached or taught. Almost everything. I won't, I'll, let me clarify that. Almost being preached, especially in America, in a G-rated message. And it bothers me. It bothers me tremendously that people have to hear the Bible the way they want to hear it. It's easy to swallow, no aftertaste. But Jesus' first preached message was X-rated. Tough, hard to take. So let me give you an illustration tonight to show you what I mean. I had to put a little bit of humor in this, but I want to give it to you. How many remember the cartoon Wile E. Coyote? Before the Roadrunner. He, before his Roadrunner fame, he had another cartoon. Does anybody know what it was? Wile E. Coyote and Ralph the Sheepdog. How many remember that? Well, just to help you in your memory, here it is. Here's what they would do. I used to love this cartoon. Every morning, Ralph and Wiley would meet at the time clock, which was mounted on a tree. As they clocked in, they would greet each other, and then they would go to the respective departments. Ralph, the sheepdog, went to his post on the cliff and took his position as the head of the sheep protector department. While Wiley conjured up some way to steal these sheep up from out from underneath his nose. Wiley, true to his nature, would slilk away in the forest to plan his strategy as head of the sheep acquisition and consumption department. As the day wore on, Ralph sat patiently at his post with a protective eye, looking over the flocks as Wiley tried one scheme after another in hopes of making his quota of sheep for the day. However, no matter how hard he tried, it seemed that poor Wiley's plan was always thwarted by Ralph at the last minute. Inevitably, as the day drew to a close just before the whistle blew, Wiley would pull out all the stops and he'd slip into his sheep costume and he would meander into the fold with the hope of finally catching his prey only to realize after his prey, after, after he caught his prey, that was in fact none other than Ralph the Sheepdog who had dressed himself up in sheep in anticipation of Wiley's scheme. Poor Wiley never caught a break. Now listen really well tonight. Wiley's sheep costume illustrates a tactic that is used by our enemy, the devil. In Matthew 7.15, Jesus warns us that in similar fashion, Satan will send ravenous wolves into the fold dressed in sheep's clothing to catch the sheep unaware and snatch them away by false teaching. Satan will do whatever he can to destroy the flock. Therefore, it is imperative that we have discerning spirits that we can discern the motives of those who are among us. Now, I can end this tonight and make that be a G, a G message, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go right to the X message tonight for you. You ready? Here. However, in our generation, the way I see it, I believe the greatest danger to the work of the kingdom of God is not as much when wolves come in dressed as sheep, but it is when the sheep go out into the world dressed as wolves' clothing. Listen. 
The greater problem in modern American Christianity is when so-called Christians wear their sheep clothing on Sunday only to put their wolf's clothing on on Monday. Now that's an X-rated message. That's one that tells us, man, we gotta, we got to take this to heart. This is why Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, to separate the wolves from the sheep. So what was Jesus' intent on showing and telling with the Sermon on the Mount? He's been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And it was. Jesus was telling his hearers then and us tonight that the happiest, richest, most well-to-do people in the world are those who yield themselves to experience the grace of God every single day. Those who literally give themselves up to grace. Let me give you one last illustration before I close. Many years ago, executives from the Time Life Publishing Organization discovered that the company's profit margin had shrunk to an alarmingly low level. Consequently, they began an intensive effort to try to cut costs. Efficiently experts, efficiency experts suggest that substantial savings could be affected in the renewal department. There were 350 people working full-time sending heartbreaking pleas to readers whose subscriptions were about to expire. For example, will you dare face your children without Time magazine on your coffee table? Actual letters that went out. In any case, enormous quantities of these letters were being prepared manually. It was calculated that if a machine could be found to replace the manual labor, millions of dollars in overhead would be saved. In time, IBM came to rescue them with an enormous computer delivered to Time Life in a blaze of Clegg lights and fanfare. Then the new system was installed. The name of each subscriber was put in a separate little plate and run through a vast machine. Whenever a nameplate came along that was within six, in, six weeks of expiration, a series of dots and dashes at the top of the tab triggered an electronic impulse that caused it to drop into a slot. The name was then affixed to one of the heartbreaking letters, which was then folded, stuffed into an envelope, labeled stamped, and dropped down a chute to the basement where a United States branch post office was set up, all without a single human hand touching the operation. The system worked flawlessly for a while until that fateful, hot, humid, sticky day in New York City when one of the nameplates stuck in the machine. A few days later, a lone sh sheep herder in Montana received 12,634 tear-jerking tear letters asking him to describe to Life magazine. The sheep herder, who hadn't received a letter in years, took his knife, carefully slid open one of the mailbags, and began reading his mail. Three we true story. Three weeks later, red-eyed, weary and up to his hips in 12,634 open pieces of mail, he made out a check for $6, filled out a subscription coupon, sent it to the president of Time Life personally with the following note, I give up. That's a story to remember when you think of God's grace. Listen, when you begin to, get to wonder about the limit of God's grace and God's mercy, you don't have to plead or beg for it. You don't have to ask him for 12,634 or 1,000 or 100 times for it. You don't have to ask him even once for it. You just have to ask God, and his mercy is always there. You just have to know that his mercy is always there. It's always there. We beg him for more of him, not more of his mercy. When we crouch down and beg, it's more of you, God. He'll always give you mercy. You don't have to do any of these beatitudes. You don't have to do a single one, and you will get to heaven. You'll get there. But you will not get there happy. You will not get there rich and you will not get there with a full life. You'll get there wondering what you missed, wondering why so-and-so had more money than you, wondering why you never got that big house, and wondering how you're going to retire with just the little pettance that you have. So the question tonight is, do we want to be happy? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Man, the happiest people in the world are those who yield themselves to experience the grace of God every day. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are comforted. They inherit the earth. They're filled. 
They obtain mercy. They see God, and others see God in them. For they are called the children of God. They also lead the most fulfilling lives.